Hello, everyone, and welcome to Food Safety Matters, the podcast for food safety professionals. I'm Stacey Atchison, publisher of Food Safety Magazine, and I'm here with Barbara Van Renterhem, editorial director, and Tiffany Mayberry, digital editor of the magazine. And here's a little fun fact. Today, I've got a fun fact. Both clarinet players. We just found out. <laughs> Former Ooh. clarinet players. <laughs> well, yes, that's exactly right. I was hoping that exactly I don't. Right. I never played the clarinet. Adam, I think, was teasing that he did. I was hoping we might have a trio. So, but apparently not. All right, you did. You did. Okay, he's saying he did, but very young. Third grade, eighth grade. How old? Very young. Okay. Anyway, no trio <laughs> is what I know. We have no trio. <laughs> no reliable. But if anyone wants to join trio. us, I guess this is an invitation. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Well, I don't have a Clar- clarinet anymore, so maybe <laughs> calling not. All, call- <laughs> calling all clarinet players. I all would right. substitute my son William for that. <laughs> oh, okay. See, we've got a backup. We have a backup, but uh, I think a, a, a podcast listener would make the would make the list first, just, just <laughs> you know, just because. All right, for today's interview, it's actually not going to be a clarinet uh, what do you call it? <laughs> <laughs> recital. It's actually going to be an interview where we're going to hear part one of Barbara's interview with Mike Kramer, Dame Bernard, and Bob Pallets, a powerhouse roundtable of food industry veterans, discussing some of the questions and circumstances that they've encountered in everything from food processing plants to retail operations. So pull up a chair, grab a cup of tea or a beer or a glass of wine, not if you're driving. No, don't do that. And for goodness sakes, no drinking on the treadmill. (laughs) So, yeah. Anyway, you get the idea. You'll want to be a part of this one. And for us, we're all back from, uh, we're all back in our places after our recent swirl of activity. Adam and I got to enjoy Chicago while attending Process Expo before the temperature dropped to, oh, 20 degrees. Oh, my God. So glad I wasn't. I bit, we just missed it. We flew out and like the next day it hit 20. It was like, ah. Anyway, it was lovely while we were there. Chicago in October. It's pretty good. Anyway, we had a few regular listeners stop by the booth while we were there. Thank you so much. It's nice to meet you guys and gals and hear that you're getting so much from the podcast and to get your suggestions for guests and topics. So thanks again. We can't wait till the next time. And now for some news. Tiffany, I think each one of these stories kind of got a lot, of, a lot of play on our website. So they're all kind of top news stories. And to start it off is the continuing saga of USDA's update on the swine rule. Yes. So last week, the United Food and Commercial Workers International Union, in conjunction with the Public Citizen Litigation Group and three United Food Local Labor Unions in Minnesota, Iowa, and Kansas, filed a federal lawsuit against the U.S. Department of Agriculture. The suit is aimed at stopping USDA's new swine slaughter modernization rule, which eliminates the line speed limits in pork slaughter plants and turns inspection of food over to companies that produce it. The lawsuit also brings up worries that increasing pork plant line speeds will put workers in danger and it will compromise the safety of the meat products these plants produce. 
According to Public Citizen, USDA, quote, admitted in its rule that it simply ignored the mounds of evidence that showed its actions will harm workers while bending over backwards to help businesses. They say this violates basic principles of administrative law. The lawsuit alleges that the new rule violates the Administrative Procedure Act because it is not backed by reasoned decision-making. The president of the number two local United Food Union in Kansas said that while USDA claims this new rule will make food safer, the experts on the front lines know this isn't true, adding that USDA is siding with big corporations just looking to make more money. I've just been trying to find any kind of response from USDA. They have in the past um, been pretty quick to respond uh, in the media, and I haven't seen anything out of them this time. I don't know if it's because it's under litigation or pending litigation, and they haven't really said much, but uh, I'll be curious to see how this plays out. Yeah. So we'll keep you updated as we as we find anything uh, more in the continuing saga of the Swine Modernization Act. <laughs> Or swine modernization rule. You got FISMA on the brain, Stacey. I do. Well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think for what, seven years, eight years now, FISMA on the brain is officially in there. <laughs> I like it. All right. What's next, Tiffany? The Interagency Food Safety Analytics Collaboration has released a new report entitled Foodborne Illness Source Attribution Estimates for 2017. This annual report... Well, wait a minute. Before you get going on all of that into the meat of the issue. Well, it's meat, poultry, (laughs) produce. Oh, boo. (laughs) I know, I know, I know, I know. um, The Interagency Food Safety Analytics Collaboration is a collaboration between CDC... FDA and USDA FSIS, um, which was founded, I believe, back in 2011 to help communication between the three agencies. So just thought we'd get that up and out at the beginning here. Thank you for that. The annual report that this group put out estimates the degree to which Salmonella, E. coli 0157, Listeria monocytogenes, and Campylobacter, along with specific foods and food categories, are responsible for foodborne illness in the U.S. The report analyzed just over 1,300 foodborne disease outbreaks that occurred between 1998 and 2017, with a specific focus on outbreaks that occurred between 2013 and 2017. And here are some of the highlights from the report. Salmonella illnesses were found to have come from numerous food categories, Seeded vegetables, chicken, fruits, pork, eggs, beef, and nuts accounted for more than 75% of salmonella illnesses during the time period measured. Nearly 75% of E. coli O157 illnesses were linked to vegetable row crops, such as leafy greens, and also beef. Listeria monocytogenes illnesses were most often tied to dairy products and fruits, However, researchers said that because listeria outbreaks are so rare, their estimates are a bit less reliable versus estimates for the other pathogens they looked at. Nearly 80% of non-dairy Campylobacter illnesses were attributed in, but also shellfish, turkey, and other meat and poultry products like lamb and duck. And again, that 80% was for non-dairy Campylobacter illnesses. 
the percentage for Campylobacter illnesses linked to dairy products were not included in the report, partly because most of those outbreaks were associated with unpasteurized milk, which researchers say is not widely consumed and therefore will overrepresent dairy as a source of illness caused by Campylobacter. In the report, they say that removing dairy illnesses from the calculations highlights important sources of illness from widely consumed foods like chicken. And of course, we'll have a link to uh, this report up on our website for anyone who wants to take a take a look. I'm disappointed that they didn't include essentially the the campy numbers from raw milk uh, because I think there are a lot of state regulators who would like to use that data to go into uh, dairy processors in their states where raw milk is allowed just to point out to them how often uh, campylobacter related illnesses are tied to their product. It would help, I think, in uh, their day-to-day work in those uh, facilities. So note to this interagency collaboration that they may be want uh, to uh, have a little sidebar with this information I think would be really useful. Note to IFSEC. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we decided today that we were inventing. If it's not a thing, we're making it a thing, IFSEC. So it probably is already a thing, but anyway. <laughs> if it's not, we're starting it, IFSEC. <laughs> um, well, now I guess more, more metrics. Oh, you know, we love metrics and... Data <laughs> and FISMA. So here we go. <laughs> At the end of September, FDA announced the launch of a new food safety dashboard that will track the impact of the rules under the Food Safety Modernization Act. The dashboard will measure progress and help FDA continue to refine its implementation of FISMA. For each rule, FDA has identified measures that will help to evaluate how well the rules are being implemented and where there could be room for improvement. Having this data will help the agency identify trends in food safety, implement a risk-informed planning and resource allocation framework, and modernize the agency's food safety work in a way that will help achieve a new era of smarter food safety. To start, the dashboard has already populated metrics related to the preventive controls rules and the foreign supplier verification program rule. Over time, the dashboard will be populated with additional data to show more FISMA outcomes. Because FISMA compliance dates were staggered over time based on business size, many companies still have not reached the required compliance dates. This means that it may take several years for the dashboard to establish baselines and identify meaningful trends in FISMA implementation. FDA says they are also beginning to track the speed of response to problems when they arise. For example, how quickly a food company issues a class one recall, the most urgent type of recall, for human and animal food. The dashboard and the initial metrics already being tracked are currently housed on FDA's website, and we'll include a link to that in today's show notes. Well, you got to click on that link. I mean, it is, it's a, you can just geek out forever. It, <laughs> I'm really looking forward to spending some time there and seeing that, and it's going to be great to see how this develops over time. And I just love the idea of, you know, being able to track the usefulness of, of the regula- regulations and, and the outcomes. Um, and this, I would love to, hopefully we can get Frank in here then 
Frank Giannis here to talk about the new era of smarter food safety. So might be time. Might be time, Frank. <laughs> Just saying. As much as I love uh, the data sets also, Stacey, I, it, in my opinion, it's a little premature, this dashboard, because it seems the companies who need this information the most haven't even reached their compliance dates yet, the smaller guys who have... Mm fewer resources to invest. So um, I am looking forward to seeing what, you know, comes out of all of this and, and what trends and patterns FDA can help identify and help the industry identify to move uh, food safety forward. Well, but maybe it'll also help some of the, the small to medium-sized people understand, right, what the outcomes are and, and help encourage them along the way. So if you can really see, well, oh, this is what this means and this is what we're going to gain as a result of, you know, of, of, of full implementation. Maybe it'll help them. I think they want them, FDA oh, to why. show them the money. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, well, I think the small to medium size know, know what they want to achieve. It's having the resources and the bandwidth to do it. I think that's challenging. Tick-tock, tick-tock. For more background on today's news and links to all of the resources mentioned, visit our podcast page and click on the show notes for episode 59. You can also follow us anytime on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Just search for Food Safety Magazine. Okay, now it's time to hear Barbara's interview with our powerhouse roundtable of food safety experts, Mike Kramer, Dame Bernard, and Bob Powitz, and all of them are returning champions to the podcast. You'll remember Mike Kramer from episodes 21 and 36, Dame Bernard from episode 31, and Bob Powitz from episodes 50 and 51, which makes me think that Dane needs to come back because I know he's got another standalone podcast in him. <laughs> so, so that he can match up all the way there. So the idea for this roundtable was born when uh, Barbara was talking to each of these gentlemen separately, when they the idea sort of coalesced kind of out there in the ethers about how great it would be to have a this type of a discussion. Because um, the three of them, you know, tend to speak so, well, frankly, lively and very frankly about stuff, um, about the many questions and circumstances that they've encountered in their careers, some of which left them thinking, you did what? <laughs> and Barbara thought that it would be an awesome idea to get them together and have this discussion as a podcast, and thankfully, they all agreed. The result is a journey through their experiences and the practical approaches that they've implemented to solve problems in everything from food processing plants to retail and food service. And Barbara, you were sure right about what a useful and interesting discussion that this would make. We, we should have recorded all of our pre-calls because those were just as lively and interesting. <laughs> that would be a full-on series, not, right? <laughs> not fit for, that's right. <laughs> so. Yeah. Um, but before we dive in, here's a little bit of a refresher uh, on these impressive guests. Mike Kramer is Senior Director of Food Safety and Quality Assurance with Ajinomoto Windsor, where he just celebrated 25 years that has spanned through various acquisitions, multi-foods, specialty brands, Windsor, and ultimately uh, the purchase by Ajinomoto. Before that, he spent 16 years at various companies in processed meat and poultry operations. And most importantly... Mike has been a member of the Food Safety Magazine editorial board since 2001. 
Dame Bernard is currently the managing director of Bold Bear Food Safety. Prior to founding Bold Bear, he served as vice president of food safety and quality assurance at Keystone Foods until 2014, where he was responsible for global programs on HACCP and food safety. Prior to joining Keystone, he was vice president of food safety for the National Food Processors Association, where he had worked since 1973. He's been an instructor and lecturer on principles and applications of HACCP and has helped formulate HACCP plans for the U.S. food industry. And we're proud to count Dane among the recipients of our Food Safety Magazine Distinguished Service Award. Bob Powitz is Principal and Technical Director of R.W. Powitz & Associates, where he specializes in forensic sanitation services to industry, law firms, insurance companies, and governmental agencies. Bob has dedicated his career to food safety, working for over 54 years to study, develop, and implement the most effective sanitation practices. He, too, has a very long list of positions and honors, too long to mention here, frankly, but we will mention, because it is, of course, most impressive, that Bob has served for many years on the Food Safety Magazine editorial advisory board. Well, as you can imagine, <laughs> it took a little bit of juggling to get all four of us uh, with an open spot in the schedule. And uh, absent one uh, company crisis that required uh, Mike's attention, we all got together and uh, spent a couple hours talking. And they all want to do it again. So, stay tuned for that. <laughs> Pretty cool. All right. And with that, let's hear part one. For our listeners, we're, we're going to take a different approach to today's interview. Um, so, several of you, two of you at least, uh, had the suggestion that we could talk about, you know, have a conversation about what you're encountering out there as you go into plants or retail environments, as you interact with regulators, because the three of you have a wealth of experience. I'm not going to comment about years of experience. So let's get started. So um, Mike, I'd love to start with you on some of the basic questions that have been asked of you when you're in a plant. Um, and we thought we'd start with sanitation and maybe some common misperceptions out there that, that you've been able to use as an opportunity to educate folks. I think this is a great place to start because, you know, I, I firmly believe that, that sanitation is one of the most important things in the facility. And if you can't get the plant clean, you can't have a safe product, safe, wholesome, uh, quality product. Some of the things that I've heard uh, are, are actually kind of interesting. And I think they come from the, a place of people wanting to know, especially the sanitors, wanting to know how they can do their job most effectively. Uh, I hear comments about um, the amount of, of, uh, of soils and what is acceptable at a pre-op inspection. And we, we try to make sure that we clearly uh, state to them that visible soil is not acceptable. It's not that we can accept a an eighth of an inch or a quarter of an inch back. We basically expect it to be a, a clean surface, but we're going to use a lot of different organoleptic techniques to verify that, including the feel of the equipment and smells, as well as the visual part of it. Uh, we also want to incorporate tools such as ATP, and I think there are even misconceptions about what ATP tells you when you 
use it. Anything to add, Dane? Uh, the sanitation issue, as Michael said, is uh, is very important. You can't run, a, you should not run a plant that's not appropriately cleaned, and the visual standard remains the standard. But at the same time, the importance of sanitary design in, in the equipment that is being used is itself, uh, I think, a critical factor. I think it's underappreciated in terms of the value that it brings to get the equipment right in the first place and to start your purchase process with the uh, equipment providers by making sure that they understand your expectations regarding the design of that equipment to be cleanable, to be accessible to cleaning. And uh, the long-term benefits are that you're going to save labor, time, and chemicals uh, throughout the the, uh, life of that piece of equipment. And it will last longer, too incidentally, because the kind of things that people have to do to clean inappropriately designed equipment uh, do cause the equipment to wear faster. So that would be my input on that. There's a lot of other factors, and and I'm sure others have more to say on that. How about you, Bob? Any thoughts about this? Yeah, the one thing that I have, because my world goes between the manufacturer and retail. One of the, and, and, and my world has always been one foot in the regulatory community because I'm a sanitarian. One of the things that concerns me with the sanitation issue is that is the lack of training at the college level for those in the regulatory community and those, believe it or not, taking food science. They learn everything but the sanitation and uh, we have yet to define how clean is clean. Uh, we we still define it as clean to sight and touch. Even looking at things subjectively, we could turn it into an objective model, but it's one of these things that's slow in coming. We rely almost exclusively when we have a sanitation problem, not on science so much, but rather we rely on the detail people from the companies that we contract with to buy chemical and cleaning equipment to come up with suitable answers. Uh, I think that's, that is my biggest problem with it. And, and, and I think that's my biggest plea that schools include uh, something about sanitation. And that includes the schools like FDA, USDA, or anyone in the food business. I think that's a really good point because we do encounter, you know, personnel coming into the sanitation positions and personnel coming in from the regulatory that really don't understand the the sanitation process and, and what it encompasses. And we do rely on our chemical suppliers and, and, and they're not all created equal. Some are very good at providing technical services, including the, the chemistry, the microbiology, but a lot of them, unfortunately, are just there to sell you chemicals and they can't provide you with the technical expertise. So you really have to develop it in-house. And, and, and a lot of that really is going to be important as, as students come out of colleges to make sure they have that background if they're going to go into the uh, food safety and, and quality part of the industry. I agree totally, Bob. 
Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think it's essential that you have in-house capabilities to make sure that the programs are running correctly and uh, and make sure that the purchases that are made in terms of the chemicals, et cetera, et cetera, are appropriate for the job. Let me also go loop back on, uh, I think we mentioned earlier, visual is still kind of the standard, and it is. That's not to undervalue the importance of doing an appropriate uh, micro-monitoring program and, and the use of ATP to gauge your uh, your progress and your your overall achievements in the sanitation area. So you got to have those in place. Uh, I prefer to have a number of sites uh, determined but leave open to the sanitors and the quality people to take some uh, swabs in areas that that may not be so scripted. So use some, some practical judgment on the floor. But I see a lot of people that don't do this appropriately, and I think it's uh, it's something that needs to be emphasized uh, greater in our internal training programs. Boy, I will I will second that motion. One of the things that the ATP manufacturers have not done is teach folks how to use it properly. Um, I can take any ATP swab from the best to the worst and make it either fail or pass. And, and you know that's we could do that. Um, unless we embrace something like a statistical model, like the old military military standard 105e or anything that's out there and use a template instead of an eyeball to swab so that we can either do a good stratified sample or a random sample of an area with ATP. And remember, we're just measuring biomass and that's fine, but we have to we have to ensure some sort of accuracy without bias. And it's one of the things that, that it has been so elusive in our industry. I wanted to ask the three of you, you, you come to sanitation, I think, from, from somewhat different perspectives. And, and Bob, you and, and Mike, um, Bob Moore as a consultant, and Mike, with your company, you're called upon to fix the problems as they're arising. But Dane, sometimes you're called in because a company wants to be proactive. Not that there's anything in crisis or wrong, but to maybe put some systems in place to keep things from happening. So, um, you know, maybe Dane, you could start us off by what are the common things you see uh, out there that, that you have asked companies to put in place that they don't typically, you know, have a system for. Well, uh, <clears throat> let's move away from sanitation then because everybody has some sort of a system, whether it's uh, completely functional or not. I mean, we've talked about that. Before we completely leave it, though, I want to, to uh, note one thing about swabbing programs. I have seen people who want to swab after they have applied the sanitizer. I think it's much more effective in gauging the success of your cleaning program to do the swabs before you apply the final sanitizing rinse because it, it really tells you how how good you're doing. And you can uh, it makes it harder to game the system too. I mean, if you take a swab and you smell it and it smells like chlorine, well, you're not going to find much when you run the micros. So I, I, before we completely leave sanitation, I want to talk about uh, to insert that. Um, as far as programs that are out there, I think that uh, one of the things that, that 
companies continue to uh, have headaches with is their own corrective action, preventive action programs. We see far too many repeats on things that have happened in the past, and you put in a corrective action and and a and a preventive measure. And then two years later, six months later, whatever it may happen to be, the same thing occurs. Um, we tend to go about these things uh, and use the, the quote-unquote retraining corrective action far too much instead of looking deeply at uh, what the actual cause was. Yes, there was a human error. Can we fix that by retraining and making sure that we've got a system in to record that? Well, yes, we can, but we still have not completely addressed the issue until we look deeply at it and see whether there is what I call a uh, people-proof fix. Is there something that we can change in the line relative to what caused the problem in the first place so that we can take the human factor out of it and make sure that we don't have those uh, issues occur in, in the future. The other thing that we do is after six months of success, we may take our eye off of that corrective action, off of that measurement that we need to do, and then we have a recurrence. So it's, it's lack of follow-through sometimes on those things. It's also a lack of um, digging more deeply into it to see if we can come up with some sort of remedy that uh, more or less bulletproofs the process. And, and Dane, I think on top of that, I think, and, and even to, to, to Bob's earlier point, part of what needs to be do, uh, taught in, in the colleges and universities is how to truly investigate as part of your kappa, which means that you're going to be either doing a 5Y or a 5M plus E to look at why you have these repeated failures. And, and I, I think sometimes those repeated failures are due to what you were talking about earlier, which is the sanitary design of the equipment. It, it may not be that we're not cleaning the equipment correctly. It may mean that we can't get the equipment cleaned correctly because of the way it's designed. But we have to be able to look at why we have these failures as we create our kappa. It can't just be re-clean, re-sanitize, retrain. Uh, it really has to be a deep dive into the man, the material, the method, um, and the environment, the, the equipment, what is the condition that we have? And unless people really understand that, it's, it's frustrating because we'll continue to have repeated failures in the same locations because we really haven't understood what the root cause is. To, to that point, I, I agree with you 100%, but to that point, there are a few things that have come up over my experiences. And I think the one is that the old axiom, one size does not fit all. And we tend to make the same mistakes without looking at traffic patterns, the, the sanitary design, not only of the equipment, but of the plant. We fail to look at air flows. Uh, once the plant is up, you have modifications, and the modifications, they themselves can cause problems. And I've seen this over and over again. But one of the things that has come up all too often is the problem of the regulatory community not understanding basic the basic concepts of something like 40 CFR. Where if we try to use different sort of sanitizing 
sanitizing strategies or cleaning strategies, if it doesn't comport exactly with an EPA number on the bottle, they're not going to accept it. And sometimes cleaning I, from, from the, the uh, just cleaning itself, like from the semiconductor industry, they don't need a sanitizer. If you can clean down to a level of a 10 to the minus five per, per, per square meter, sanitizing will bring you down to 10 to the minus 10. That's sterility by any, any stretch of the imagination in a hospital. So sometimes just cleaning itself, non-conventional forms of cleaning being accepted by the regulatory community and by even by the food manufacturing or retail community has that would be significant in in achieving a goal because making the same mistakes with the same equipment and everything else that we see all too often do you see anything changing on the regulatory front? You know, I see Frank all over all over the airwaves about a new era of food safety. And so maybe there might be movement into more embracing of technology or new uh, chemistries, for example. I see two things happening. I see uh, a movement towards sustainability. And I see a movement towards green cleaning. I hate that phrase. But we're, we're seeing it already. And the sooner embracing of those concepts is lagging behind, far behind the technology evolving. And I've, I've started introducing really non-chemical means in a lot of my, my clients. And we're demonstrating very easily that, that we can achieve, we're still using sanitizers, don't get me wrong, but we still, we're, we're demonstrating that we can achieve levels that are very acceptable to the regulatory community without using a sanitizing agent. So Mike, how does your company deal with these trends of sustainability? And As we, you know, we have to look at it from, from, two perspectives. One is a go forward and one is kind of looking backwards. From a, a carbon footprint standpoint, we've got facilities that, that are 30 and 40 years old. And so we, we do what we can to try to make sure that from a chemical standpoint, um, we're looking at what impact the chemicals can have where we have either uh, water going to the city treatment or we have uh, pre-treatment before we send it out. Um, but the key that we're focusing on is making sure that the plant is clean. And, you know, I hear Bob talking about green cleaning and, and um, yes, that that is going to be a continued trend. Um, but we also have not had a lot of, of, uh, of our customers come to us yet and saying, what are you doing to make sure that your chemicals are not uh, intruding upon the environment? Although I think that's something that we're going to have to address very quickly. I see a lot of that changing, especially within the food service industry. Mm -hmm. What are your clients telling you, Dane? Do they want to move in that direction? Are they resisting? Oh, they have uh, very, very strongly moved in the sustainability areas uh, anymore. It's it's a 
it's almost a greens fee to sell to certain operations, to certain retailers, that you have a program that minimizes your environmental footprint. And uh, this is not uh, necessarily a new trend. This has been going on for quite some time, moving in that direction, reducing your water usage, um, making sure that the water that goes back into the environment is cleaner than it was when you took it out of the environment almost. Um, energy conservation, all of these things are, are not only good for business and good for the environment, but almost a requirement uh, these days for, for certain manufacturing sectors to move in that direction. So it is, uh, it is a very strong trend. Let's move a little bit, uh, still kind of related to sanitation, but in the realm of allergens, um, clearly most of the recalls we see out there are related to allergens, whether it's a label issue or uh, something undeclared or didn't make it in uh, to the list on the label. Um, how much of a headache is this still for, for processors? And, and now that we're seeing some movement on the retail front, uh, Europe is now wrestling with uh, whether certain retailers, if they're only selling um, direct and not, uh, and not putting the stuff out in the store, they're going to be required uh, to do some extra labeling. So, First of all, I guess, why are allergens still such a headache? Um, and what are the major challenges in this area? May I start? Sure. Um, this is just my view. The reason I, that I think it's still such a, a, an issue is that there's still far too many um, human interfaces that can fail in the product stream so that uh, you don't have com combinations of ingredients in a product that are not supposed to be there. Mechanical issues do pop up. Uh, you've got to review the product flow through a system, pipes and valves and all that, see if you have any pressure points where something could go back through a valve when it's not supposed to. I mean, the, the one of the common assumptions is, well, we put it together and it's always going to work the way we put it together. Doesn't always happen. There are also obviously labeling issues, but I think there's some solutions on the horizon or, or on the ground now where machine learning can uh, help us to review labels so that we don't get the, the wrong label on the right product or vice versa. So there's still those issues out there. There are also supplier issues where you've really got to have control of your supply chain so that the pre-mixed ingredients, the suppliers don't change the formula and not inform you in time. And I think a lot of that is going away as, as time passes because of the realization of that. But uh, at my last job, Two days before I took my last job, they called me for a uh, situation where an ingredient supplier had changed an ingredient and not informed the company. And it did not result in a recall because that the ingredient that was substituted was already on the label. But it, uh, it had it been a different situation, it could have resulted in a recall. So I think those those areas are getting better, but uh, we, we still have a lot, uh, a lot to learn in terms of avoiding the human errors. My experience has been a little bit different on the retail end. Um, I had a f several um, inquiries from folks that were going gluten-free. And 
their biggest problem was actually to certify that it is gluten-free within the plant. Once you're a baker, you've got you got flour all over the place. Now, how do we get rid of that? And uh, we had to set up uh, a sampling program. Uh, we used a lot of ATP and and uh, uh, some of the better models of the ATP, but it it was it was almost a a, a Herculean effort to get that allergen out from where it was supposed to go. I also believe it or not had a nut manufacturer uh, that did everything from from tree nuts to peanuts separate uh the peanuts out of uh out of their out of their line and to clean it in such a way and to separate the processes that you don't get crossover uh this is this is almost it's gotten to be almost an art form to do that um if you build a new plant you can but to convert we're seeing quite a bit of that. And I, I feel for some of the manufacturers that get caught in this uh, undeclared allergens, and it's simply sometimes nothing more than the design of the plant and the positioning of the equipment within that plant. I think another challenge with regards to allergens is the fact that, and I don't know how it is in a lot of other companies, but I know within our company, our product development personnel are challenged to come up with new, innovative, exciting fusion types of products, products that, you know, cross over between the, the different ethnicities. And as such, they're reaching out and they're looking at what new ingredients can I use? What different types of ingredients can I use? And I know that from time to time they've come to me and they've said, well, can we use this or can we use that? Where in the past we may not have incorporated a certain fish a crustacean, a, a nut. And I've said, yes, we can because we have a robust allergen program, but we've got to make sure from a supplier standpoint that it is clearly labeled, that our suppliers understand that they can't change labels on us without giving us at least six months notification, which can be a challenge. Uh, we have to do an assessment of the facility to make sure that where it's received, where it's going to be handled, uh, the equipment on which it's going to be produced is is capable of being cleaned and then validate that we can eliminate the the allergen. Uh, I think that's where a lot of the challenge comes from. And while we have incorporated some of the barcode reading types of, of technologies on our lines to make sure we've got the right label, you still always have to be concerned when you're introducing a new allergen that the people in the plant understand why it's so important that they follow the allergen program not just not just here's an allergen here's what you do with it they have to understand why they have to follow the processes because if they don't then it would be easy for them not to follow and and we we really try to focus on the emotional part of it which is the why now how much of a headache is it for us companies for example to export products knowing that in other countries, they have different allergens that need to be specified. You know, something that that's not considered an allergen in the U.S. celery, sesame, um, is in Canada, for example. So, Mike, do you do you want to touch on that first? Well, we do. Um, the majority of our 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 
sales are in the United States, but we do ship a lot, sell a lot to Canada. We haven't really gone outside of North America too much. We do, we do sell products into Mexico as well. But yes, you're absolutely right. So we have to know uh, the regulations and the, uh, the rules for Canadian uh, labeling products that are going to be shipping to, to Canada. And that means a different set of protocols in the plant as far as, okay, you know, how do we, what do we run first? How do we make sure that we've labeled it correctly? And um, even to the extent, where do these ingredients, where do the other ingredients come from? Because we know, especially some of the agricultural uh, commodities, you know, they're grown in areas where there are, um, you know, mustard and, you know, sesame, and there's other things that are, that are in the area that may naturally cross over. So we've also had to take a look at working with our suppliers on how can you assure us that something we receive from you is not cross-contaminated. So there's a lot of work behind it if you're selling outside the United States. To that point, just another little wrinkle that I've come across, and that's the kosher halal with new processing and uh, various uh, suppliers of food components, uh, and then assuring that it meets the dietary code, the religious dietary codes. When you when you when you cleaning or whatever you're doing for kosher halal or halal or setting up a plant to accept that again this goes this goes back to our original argument and this is has to do again with allergens and again to 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 everyone's point know what you're getting coming in and that's one of the biggest challenges yeah one of the things that should be uh, that I like to recommend is to look at your items that contain allergens and decide whether you actually need the allergenic ingredient. If it's not a characterizing ingredient and you can come up with something to tweak your formulation that doesn't have an allergen in it, do so because it will simplify your life. But do the validation, right, if you're going to change the formulation. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, obviously, you you, you want to do all of that and make sure that it's uh, it's safe and, and all of that. But if you can, for example, if, uh, oftentimes these uh, formulas are, are historical and this is they make it that way because they've always made it that way. And if you don't need mustard, if you can use something in place of that that gives you the same product characteristics, then get rid of the, uh, the mustard. So now you're remembering that this is part one. Because, you know, we wouldn't just leave you hanging like that. Tune in next time to hear part two. And, of course, we want to thank Mike Kramer, Dame Bernard, and Bob Powitz, food safety rock stars, one and all. You'll find links for all the references we've mentioned in the episode in our show notes. You can access those in your podcast player or on our website at foodsafetymagazine.com slash podcast, and then find episode 59. Don't forget to send us your questions and suggestions to podcast at foodsafetymagazine.com or post a note on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Okay, so I'm leaning in a little bit here because it's time for us to have a little heart-to-heart. If you've listened all the way through this episode to this point, but you haven't subscribed, I don't know, I think that we can agree that we need to move to the next phase in our relationship. It might seem like a big step, 
but I promise it'll be worth it. Subscribe. I know, but let's not be in denial. You're a fan, and you'll like it when new and bonus episodes magically appear in your library. It'll be good, I promise. That's it for us today. Our next regular episode will post on November 12th. And I still want to just say, oh my God, November 12th, but whatever, I'm not going to. (laughs) That's it for us today. Our next regular episode will post on November 12th. We'll talk to you then.